Uh, it's all good. It's all good. So, so good to be with you this morning. If you're visiting with us, my name is Jim West, and I get to serve as lead pastor here today. It's my privilege to bring the Word of God from the book of Ephesians. We're slowly w- working our way through the book of Ephesians, uh, one verse, one thought unit at a time. We're actually on our third week looking at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. This is really one of the most succinct, beautiful, powerful proclamations of the gospel. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus as well as many house churches in that area, writing to a mixed audience of uh, Gentile converts, Jewish converts. You know, he's, he's just reframing the gospel in such a way to say not only can this happen, but this has happened in the lives of those uh, who have been called and, and, and chosen by God, saved through the blood of Christ. And uh, it, it really is the end of a prayer that he began in Ephesians 1, uh, just encapsulating the whole hope of the gospel. The first week we looked at, at verses 1 through 3, where Paul says, <laughs> And you were dead. You were dead in your sins and transgressions in which you walked, following the prince of the air and the spirit of this age, and subject to the desires of the body, sons of disobedience and doomed for God's wrath, children of wrath, like all of mankind. That's the human condition. Then in in the second week, we looked at, you know, the good news, right? Verse four, but God, but God intervened. Because of his rich mercy, because of his love for us, he made us alive in Christ and he raised us with Christ and he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places to show the immeasurable riches of his grace. I mean, we've, we've looked at all of that but there's a little bit of meat left on this bone, (laughs) which comes in verse 10. And it really addresses the question, to what end? God did this. We were dead. He made us alive. But to what end? And so that'll be kind of the way Paul ends this great hymn of praise uh, in terms of of God's grace. So please, let's just read the whole thing one more time. Uh, I want you to have this almost memorized in your heart. It's so important. Please stand. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. The words will be on the screen. Church, read it like you mean it. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Praise God. Please be seated. Church, will you pray with me? Lord, as we gather in the spirit of worship and prayer, I just pray that you'll just cut through all the mess, 
All the distractions, our plans for Thanksgiving dinner, our thoughts about the chief's chances against the Chargers. Lord, that you would just set all that aside because we have gathered in your house as your people to hear from you, God Almighty, God of the universe, creator of heaven and earth, and our Redeemer, Jesus Christ the Lord, through the power of your Spirit, who actually comes to indwell with us and among us and even in us, that we would hear from God. Because that changes everything, Lord. Speak to us. We are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I want to take just a minute of personal privilege. <clears throat> we have a, uh, a sister church in the very bustling metropolis of Blue Rapids, Kansas. EPC Church, their pastor recently retired, and uh, they have um, just asked if they can join us in the Ephesians series, and they're going to actually start the series uh, in the first of the year. So they're going to be behind us. But when they finally get here, I want to say hi. Hi, Blue Rapids. We're glad that you're with us, uh, as well as our online um, attendees and our 1030 service at Overland Park. Good morning to everybody. So good to be together through technology, in person, wherever we are. It's just a, a privilege. Now, how many subheadings do you think I have? Three is the holy number. Uh, so, <laughs> number one, two heresies of good works. Number two, a new creation. And number three, I'm becoming your true self. First, two heresies of good works. Okay, so over the past couple of weeks, we've looked at verses one through nine. I've saved verse 10 till the very end. And here's what Paul writes in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, we are going to talk about good works this morning. But some of you are brand new, like you're visiting for the first time. Maybe you've been gone for the past couple weeks. And so I cannot speak about good works without honoring the incredible work that the Apostle Paul has done in the first nine verses to establish the very heart of the gospel he has gone through great pains. Let me just sum it up. God made us alive in Christ when we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Thus, we have been saved by grace through faith. It was God's gift, not by works, so that no man may boast, period. Now, we're going to talk about good works, and some of you are going to be tempted to add a little bit of law back to grace. Don't you do it. You may not add any law to grace. Our salvation is God's doing through Jesus on the cross, and there's not one ounce of that saving work that we can take credit for, not one ounce. Say it with me, church. Not one ounce. Keep your grimy hands off of that. Amen. You had nothing. God saved you. You didn't save you. You're like, okay, I get it. We're saved by grace. Move on. <clears throat> I've only been a pastor since I was 18 years old. I'm 52. I know I look like I'm 30. That's a long time. I thank you for that. It's a long time. I've, 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 I've known so many church people 
And let me tell you something. As often as you've heard the gospel of grace, most of you don't actually believe it yet. You are still a person who is so drawn by the power of good works. And there's really two heresies of good works. Let me just run you through them real quickly. First is what I would call the religion of good works, which, by the way, is like every religion in the world except for Christianity. Every religion and really every major philosophy in the world will come down to this basic sense that we have to do enough good works to be accepted by a good God and or to go to the place of the good people when we die. Uh, that was a common misunderstanding amongst the Jews in the first century. That was also a common assumption among the pagan Gentiles. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Taoism, all the isms, all the cultic religions of the ancients, the pagans, and even humanism today that doesn't even believe in a God. I mean, they're all based upon this haunting notion that what comes around goes around. How many of you know that's true? You even say that all the time, right? Polite people say you get what you deserve. Unpolite, you know, unpolite people say karma's a bad thing. <laughs> right? You, you, you say these things. Now, we can be sure that our choices always have consequences, right? And that's how we learn, 100%. And most of us can bear witness to that, like our bad behavior tends to catch up with us, Right? That's all common sense. It's all good. But if, if we extend that line of reasoning to eternal matters, we will inevitably fall into the religion of good works, which will boil down to this. I need to do more good than bad so that my good consequences outweigh my bad consequences. So my, my good consequences will reward me versus my bad consequences damn me. That is the religion of good works. It is extremely common. It is rooted in all religions all over the world, minus one, and that is the gospel of grace called Christianity. It is a heresy. It is not true. It is anti-gospel. The second heresy is very similar to the first, but a little bit worse. And it's what I would refer to as the God owes me religion. God owes me religion generally goes like this. If I strive to obey all the laws and I help the little ladies across the street and I do all the right religious things, if I've been good, then God owes me good things. Now you're sitting there, you're like, you're like I would never think that way. <laughs> oh, yes, you would. Yes, you would. In fact, yes, you do. The vast majority of people actually think this way. And the way that you know that you're, a tenant of the, you know, God owes me religion, that you're a faithful member of this group, is that when something horrible happens in your life, you will be asking the question and you'll ask it to everyone who will listen to you, what have I done to deserve this? What have I done to deserve this? How could God let this happen to me? Now, by the way, I do not mean to be disrespectful to your pain, to your loss, to the horrible circumstances that you might be in right now. Listen, this is the most natural, normal question to ask. Just about everybody does. But at the risk of offending you, 
I simply want to point out that when you ask that question, you betray that you have knowingly or unknowingly fallen into the camp of the God owes me religion. In other words, you have knowingly or unknowingly come to believe that because you're what you would consider a good person and you've worked hard to be a good person, you go to church, that God owes you better than what you're currently experiencing. That you, you literally believe in your spirit, I'm a good person, I've, I've been good, I've tried really hard to be good. How could God allow these things to happen to me? I'm a good person, I don't deserve these things. Now here's the other side of that coin, and it's even more hideous and really heartbreaking, is that you actually believe that you deserve these bad things. Like you are so buried under your guilt and shame, and you're like, see, God's punished me, I knew it, I'm a horrible person, this is what I deserve. Uh, again, most of us knowingly or unknowingly think this way. We honestly believe that that somehow what happens to us in our lives is just kind of based upon what we deserve. By the way, if you ever hear the religion of works or the religion of God owes me, if you ever hear that message being preached in a church that's called a Christian church, get up, walk out, don't look back because that is heresy. That is an anti-gospel message. What we've just read in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is the actual gospel. And here's the truth and the uniqueness and the counterintuitive nature of the, <laughs> of the actual gospel. I mean, it's so counterintuitive, you'll probably never fully grasp it in this life. You'll constantly struggle to believe it and you'll be forever grateful for it. Here it is. Contrary to popular belief, God doesn't give us what we deserve. I deserve hell on my best day. On the day that I preach my best sermon. On the day that I've been as good of a Christian as little Jim West can muster up to be. I deserve hell on my best day. According to God's standards. And so do you. God doesn't give us what we deserve. We deserve condemnation. Because of Jesus, God gives us forgiveness. We deserve hell, but because of Jesus, God gives us heaven. We deserve wrath, but because of Jesus, God gives us grace. And oh, by the way, because God gives us unmerited grace by sending his precious son to die in our place, God owes us absolutely nothing. God owes you nothing. He saved you by grace. He saved you by giving you his son. He doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe you health or wealth or ease. He doesn't even owe you an explanation for why you're going through a hard time right now. You have to let that go. If we're saved by his unmerited grace, his infinite mercy, if we're saved because God absorbed the cost of our evil through his only son, God owes us nothing. Can you see how contrary the gospel of grace is to the religion of good works and the religion of God owes me? Radically radically, radically different. Now, some of you, God bless you. I mean, you're really like, you're mad. And here's why you're mad. You're, you're looking at your life, right? And then you look across town or, you know, you look at these other people and 
you know, they're shooting each other, they're blowing each other up, they're like horrible people, they're killing people and chopping in pieces, they're like the most evil people that you can compare yourself to, and you're like, no, I'm a good person, that's a bad person. You can't tell me that God should not give a little bit of credit, you know, like a little bit of protection, like some extra blessings to people who've really worked hard at being good versus people who are clearly evil and bad. I just really think, like, I just want, I just want what I deserve. <laughs> Friends, listen to me. Can I give you a piece of advice? Never, ever, ever ask God to give you what you deserve. That's a bad idea. That is not going to end well. And if you are so narcissistic, as to believe that God owes you because of how good you are. I must ask you to open the Bible and just read the Ten Commandments. Have you ever lied? You're a liar. Have you ever taken something that doesn't belong to you? You're a thief. Have you ever lusted over somebody who's not your spouse? You're an adulterer. Have you ever used the Lord's name in vain? You're a blasphemer. I can go on if you like. The truth is that there's not one of us who is righteous according to God's standard. You're like, no, no, I'm not saying I'm perfect. I know I'm not perfect. But I mean, I've done a lot of good. If you go to a court of law, the judge does not judge you based upon what you've done good. He judges you based upon the laws that you've broken. For you to somehow say, yeah, but... I should be acquitted for my bad things because I did good things. Like, I, yeah, I committed murder, but I served at the food pantry. <laughs> the way justice works is if you break the law, you get punished. And that is exactly what we all deserve. That's what you deserve. And no amount of good works trumps that or erases or, or somehow makes all of our evil unimportant. It, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way in a court of law. It doesn't work that way when it, it comes to God judging us. He's going to judge us by his standard. We've broken his law. We deserve punishment. We deserve condemnation. And here's the gospel of grace. God doesn't give us what we deserve. And he doesn't just wave his hand and say, well, justice doesn't matter. No, he's not going to do that. He placed all the justice that we deserve on his only begotten son who is sinless, who is perfect. The Bible calls him the lamb of God and it's his sacrifice in our place by which we are forgiven. We are reconciled to God. We don't get what we deserve. We get grace. That is the gospel. Jesus did that. We didn't. God made us alive when we were dead. Paul makes it very clear. This is grace not by works. You weren't saved by works, but you were saved for works, right? That's what it says. All right, so let's look to my second subheading, a new creation. By the way, just time out. Was I clear? <laughs> it's really important to me that we're clear about that. In three weeks of redundant teaching on you are saved by grace alone, I really hope that you get it. But, but trust me, you will hear the gospel over and over again 
and it'll hit you differently throughout the course of your life. And at some point, that'll actually take at a level where you really believe it, and it'll change your life. But catch yourself, if you, if you have the little God owes me religion or the religion of good works, just remember, that's heresy. That's not in the Bible. That's not what he said, okay? Number two, a new creation. So in verse 10, Paul writes, <laughs> just read the same verse over and over again. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you think of this as like a hymn, and this is the, the closing verse, the final stanza, this hymn of grace. Everything, everything that Paul's going to say in verse 10 points back to everything he's already said, right? That's what the word for means. <laughs> for, as, as a result of, consequently then, because you're saved by grace, because God made you alive in Christ, this is true, that we are, the church, we are his workmanship. Now, when we think of workmanship, we can think of, you know, uh, somebody builds a house and you look at the contractor or the architect say, that's the workmanship. Maybe, you know, actually the guys who actually did all the work. But the, the word here in the Greek is poema. So it actually, it's, it's much more artistic. In the, it's, it's creation, but it's creation with, with design and beauty and, and artistry. A workmanship is a good word, but masterpiece might be better. You are God's masterpiece. Church, you who are formerly spiritually dead people who have been made alive in Christ, you are God's masterpiece. A work of art. This is really something. Uh, I don't know what it is that moves your heart to worship God. For some of you, maybe, you know, it's like you're out at night you know, away from the city and you just see a billion stars and you think about how small you are and how infinite God is and how the grandeur of the universe or, you know, just the vastness of the sea or the majesty of the mountains, the diversity of all of the animal life. And if you actually just sit and watch people for a while, just the wonder of a human being. All of these things bear witness to the grandeur and majestic nature of God and his creative work. But Paul, I think, is actually saying, yeah, but, yeah, but what trumps all of that is a redeemed soul. The, the, the greatest work of art, the masterpiece of God, is a soul that was dead that has been made alive in Christ. You are God's masterpiece, church, a living testimony to his workmanship, to his brilliance, to his goodness, to the immeasurable riches of his grace. Amen? A New Testament scholar, F.B. Meyer, writes that he could love us when we were dead like Lazarus and trespasses and sins, that he has linked us in the bonds of indissoluble union with his son, that he has made it possible for us to share his resurrection, his triumph, and his throne, that we, the poor children of earth and sin, should be admitted into the inner circle of deity. This will be to all eternity the mightiest proof of the exceeding riches of his grace. Paul goes on. He's not done. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Now, the word poema can mean creation or, or the verb version created cre to create. But this is a different word. This is the word kistentes, a term that speaks to God's creating work in terms of the heavens and the earth. So this is the picture. If you have been saved by God's grace through Jesus Christ, you've been twice created. 
right? John 1, verse 3, all things that were made, through, were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. This is the first creation. All the heavens and the earth, all human beings, everything that is was made through Christ who was with God in the beginning and was God, right? This is the whole preamble there in the, in the gospel of John. But the, the narrative is we were created, we were created in God's image. It was good and God breathed his life into us. We were designed as human beings to function with the life of God in us. But then sin came. The great fall of humanity and we were cast out of the garden. And without the life of God in us, our soul dies. And that then is the plight of the human condition. You were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you once walked. But then God made us alive. And when he made us alive in Christ, it was our second creation. Jesus said it this way in John 3, you must be born again. In John 10, he promised, I have come to bring them what? Life. And that they may have it abundantly. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is the picture of what it means to be created in Christ. You are recreated. He's talking to the church. Of course, you were originally created, but you have been recreated, being created anew again in Christ. Not resuscitated. We have not been resuscitated in Christ. It's not just bringing something that was dead back to its former way of, of being non-dead. We're not resuscitated in Christ. We're recreated. This powerful picture, Paul writes in Galatians 2, 20, 21, I've been crucified with Christ. The Greek word is ego, right? I, ego have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the picture. The new creation of dead souls made us alive. And it is this I, but not I. You are still yourself. In fact, you're far more yourself than you've ever been. But what defines you is not you. It's Christ who lives in you. That's your new life. That's your new identity. And that leads to good works. Paul writes, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is why the gospel is so counterintuitive. Listen, Satan actually really wants you to believe that you're saved by your good works. That is his message constantly. Why would he do that? Because he can either make you an insufferable religious prig like a Pharisee who judges everybody else who's not near as good as you are, or he will bury you under condemnation and despair and shame. Either way, he's got control over you and what you're hearing. But the gospel of grace says, no, God made you alive. You are his masterpiece. You have been recreated. You have been born again. Your identity is Christ in you. And as a result of Christ in you, you will bear good works. You will, you will do good works. It, it will, it's an inevitable reality of Christ in you. We're not saved by good works, we're saved for good works. New Testament scholar William Barclay writes, good works can never earn salvation, but there is something radically wrong if salvation does not produce good works. We cannot earn God's love, but we can and must show how grateful we are for it by seeking with our whole hearts to live the kind of life with, which will bring joy to God's heart. Dr. Kent Hughes writes, works are a sign that we are his workmanship. No one more wholeheartedly than Paul repudiated good works as a ground of salvation. 
No one more strongly insisted on good works as a fruit of salvation. Authentic believers, though made by God's hand, work for him. Dr. John Stott writes, good works are indispensable to salvation, not as its grounds or means, but as its consequences and evidence. So you get the picture. I mean, the good works are the outflow. The outflow of Christ in us will be that we are doing good works, good works just being defined as those things that bring glory to God and and hope to the world. Let me unpack that further for you. My third subheading on becoming your true self. I know, I know, you need an illustration. I got one. All right, so 14 years ago, that's when we moved here from South Carolina. We moved here to the great, you know, state of Kansas where we lived down in Olathe. And we bought this house and had a big old yard full of crabgrass. And so I went out and bought a lawnmower. I bought a 21-inch push mower, not one of those self-propelled, like you actually got to push it. Old Troy built, right? Brand new, little cheap push mower. Somewhere in my mind, I thought, this is going to keep my boys busy. <clears throat> well, with about half an acre of grass to mow, uh, it wasn't long before I just caved and bought a riding lawnmower. But we still use this little mower to mulch up leaves because I'm too lazy to rake. And, uh, you know, for trim work and whatever. But the thing is, is that due to a mile old fishing boat and 26,000 bikes, there was no room for that mower in my garage. 26,000 bikes and scooters. So, never mind. And they're still there. Never mind. All right. So this is, this is good. It's confession for the soul. So this poor lawnmower for 14 years has existed underneath my deck. <laughs> Dirt, dust, rust. So it was no great surprise that in year 14, this summer, when we brought that thing out to use it, it would not start. It just wouldn't start. It would not run. And I'm no great mechanic, you know, so I mean, I changed the spark plug and I got the old fuel out and put in seafoam, which should typically fix everything, and it didn't work. It would not start. And so here's the situation. It's it's still a mower. It's the mower that I bought 14 years ago. It just doesn't work, right? So I mean, I can push it around. I can sharpen the blades. I can fill it full of gas and oil, but to what end? Because it doesn't work. It won't run. And if the mower doesn't run, if it doesn't work, it may be a mower, but if it's not operating the way it's supposed to be, its destiny is the landfill. Well, instead of giving up the, the old mower to the landfill, I actually took it apart and replaced the carburetor. And behold, it now works. The mower could not fix itself. It needed an intervention by its owner. It was destined for the junkyard. But when the mower received a new carburetor, it began to work in the way it was designed to work, The evidence of what it was designed to do is now obvious by what it does. So I want you to keep that thought in mind. And and consider one more time what Paul just wrote. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his classic book, The Cost of Discipleship, writes, In eternity past, God not only chose a people to be in a relationship with himself, but he marked out a path for them to walk. This is a path of good works, which would characterize their lives throughout their Christian journey and bring glory to God. Every human soul was specifically designed by God 
for good works that God prepared for us before we were ever born. That is to say that not one single human life is an accident. Not one single human life is unimportant or insignificant. We were all designed to play a role in God's world, and we were made to walk in that role. However, through the corruption of sin, when we were separated from the eternal life of God, our soul became lifeless, and we became like that lawnmower that doesn't run. Now, a lawnmower that doesn't run is still a lawnmower. It can be useful. I mean, you, you can be there. You can use it as a table, and you can sit things on it, right? You can use it as an anchor for your boat. You can use it for decoration. But a mower that does not function, it's, it's actually not itself. It, it's not very useful. It was designed one way, but it's, it's not working that way, right? In the same way, our lives will never work in the way that we were designed to work apart from the life of God in us. That's the way we were designed to function. The eternal life that Jesus promised isn't just, you know, in the by and by. The eternal life that Jesus promised is the fuel of the soul. But without that fuel, we simply cannot walk or work as we were intended to. So here again is the good news of the gospel. In Christ, we've been redeemed. That's the word that the scriptures use, redeemed. That is to say something that originally had great value and worth, created an image of God. God said it was good, and then it was corrupted, and it died, and it was just like a mower with a gummed-up carburetor, completely useless, cannot fix itself. But the owner intervenes and redeems that which had lost its value, and now there's extraordinary value. This is, this is what Paul just said. There was formerly no life. Now there's eternal life. Dead souls who were walking in sins and trespasses, following the spirit of the age. Now we see souls in the church who have become fully alive. They're animated through the very person of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And they are coming to know who they are and to do those things that God prepared in advance for us to do. Dr. Kent Hughes captures this truth. Listen to this quote. He says, each of us have an eternally designed job description that includes the task, the ability, and the place to serve. You may prefer Jerusalem, but you'll glorify him more in Babylon if he has called you there. And whatever the task to which he has called you, you will be equipped for it as surely as a bird is capable of flight. And in doing, listen, and in doing the works he has called you to do, you will be both more and more his workmanship and more and more your true self. Oh, I love that quote so much. That when Christ is in you and you are doing the works that he's empowering you to do, you more and more will show yourself to be this masterpiece of God. And at the same time, you will more and more be becoming your true self. (laughs) Church, listen. If Christ is not in you, you have never met you. If Christ is not in you, you have never met you, nor has anyone else. Think about it. The true self is both unknowable and unattainable without the life of God indwelling the soul. It would be like owning a lawnmower that has never started. 
It might look impressive. It might shine on the outside. But if it doesn't run, we'll never understand what it is or what it's capable of. That is true for our souls as well. If Christ is not in you, you have no concept of who you are. I don't mean to be disrespectful. It's just an observation. If Christ is in you, you have no concept of who you are. Because who you are was designed to exist and to function with the life of God in you. And the only way we have the life of God in, in us in this age is through the work of Christ on the cross. That we are recreated and made alive in him. So if Christ is not in you, you don't even know you. And you have no idea what you're capable of. So as we close, I would just bid you to not waste another day of your life walking away from your true self. Walking in sins and trespasses, following the spirit and the lies of this age. That's not who you are. I would bid you to call upon the name of Jesus. (laughs) Be saved by grace through faith, which is simply trusting in him and be made alive. Be made alive with the very spirit of Christ in you and you will then discover who you truly are. You are chosen. You are a child of God predestined before the foundation of the world to be adopted as his son and his daughter. You are unique and wonderfully designed with a destiny. And that destiny is now what summons you. It is what you have life and breath for at this time. You have been saved to walk in that destiny to be exactly who you are and to be exactly where you are for such a time as this. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the power of the actual gospel, not a gospel of works, not a gospel of God owes me, but the gospel of grace. And it is being saved by grace through faith that we are made alive through what Jesus did on our behalf, filled with this eternal life, called by so many things, the bread of life and living water, being born again. But it is something radically new and powerful that reclaims that which was corrupted and broken and so-so so, so sadly depressed and lost, which is the human condition. But you made us alive and you've redeemed us and you've given us your spirit through the power of your name that we might come alive, that this engine within us might start up, that we would come to know who we are and we would do that thing that you thought about before the foundation of the world, this this role that you have created us to play in your kingdom work, regardless of what that is, whatever it entails, whatever it might require of us, that you would receive glory and your kingdom would advance, that we would actually 
live to accomplish the purpose that you designed us to accomplish. That we would grow into becoming the people that you knit us together to be. So Lord, on behalf of even one soul here today at our other location online, Blue Rapids, wherever people might be today, Lord, I just pray if there's even one soul who just needs to repent and say, God, I'm sorry, I I got this wrong. I thought you owed me. I thought me trying to be good was, forgive me. I accept this gift of your grace. I, I accept it. Recognizing I'm not worthy. You're not giving me what I deserve. You're, you're giving me grace. Yes, Lord. And I pray that you would now fill me with this eternal life, that I would come alive, that I would come to know who I am in your eyes, and that I would do those things that you knit me together to do. Lord, I pray this on behalf of one soul and all of our souls. And on behalf of the church, Lord, we come to you in this season of Thanksgiving saying thank you. Thank you, thank you for your grace. Thank you for making us live when we were dead, when we could not fix ourselves. You took our heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh. You gave us your own life in us. We didn't deserve it. We could never earn it. We are forever grateful for it. And I pray, Lord, that you would empower us through the daily disciplines of following you, filled with your life, that we would do the works that you have planned for us to do. Help us to understand how you have equipped us, shaped us, placed us, to serve you and to bring you glory for such a time as this. And I pray this in Jesus' name and all the church said, amen. Amen.